Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network. Today, I'm very happy to say that we have Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman on the show, and we'll be talking about American Umpire, her terrific new book. I suspect that it will be somewhat controversial, having read other books like this and also having been in academia for some time, because it has a thesis or a big idea that runs counter, I think, I don't know if it's the conventional wisdom, but it is a lot of something that goes for wisdom in uh, certain publications, which I won't mention. Elizabeth, maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. I am a professor of history. I work at San Diego State University, where I have a an endowed chair. I'm very grateful for that. I also have a fellowship at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, where I actually wrote most of this book. Mm-hmm. So I, I hang out in California is the mm-hmm. best answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a nice place. The Hoover Institution is a nice place. It's a good place to write a book. Yeah, it's a very. It, it was very interesting to me to be there actually because I'd always heard about it as a very conservative think tank, and in fact, I was a student at Stanford many years ago. So we we all had kind of we'd say bad things about the yeah, institution, sure. which I think were basically unfounded, as yeah. so many things are. Yeah, and. Um, Anyway, uh, but uh, I was very, very pleased to find that it was a very supportive environment, and mm-hmm. you know, people were quite uh, encouraging about the work I was doing and, and not at all controlling about the outcomes. Yeah, that's good. Part of, uh, part of the reason that I mentioned the Hoover Institution is I'd like them to invite me to come write a book. <laughs> I spoke most <laughs> well, of us. Most of us would. That, yeah, yeah, I don't know that's going to happen to me. I don't really have that much to say. So uh, tell us why you wrote American Umpire. That's a kind of a complicated story. I mean, I think the best answer is that I grew up reading the kinds of things you were just referring to earlier in in our presentation here. I you know grew up in the it was a kid in the '60s and '70s and had grown up on revisionist histories that looked at the United States as a grasping, power mad kind of empire. And I assume that to an important extent that that was true, uh, that uh, not necessarily an empire per se, but that it had had an overwhelming and overweening presence and that perhaps a lot of that had to do with just being kind of you know, obsessed with our own power. And 
as I taught that subject, my gosh, for years and years, I found my notes changing and my own ideas about it changing. And then I had a fellowship in Ireland, actually a Fulbright, and I was there with my kids. And I was listening one dark and stormy night. There are a lot of dark and stormy nights in Ireland. And a fellow who was objecting to the Iraq war, who was a former diplomat for Ireland, was saying, but Iraq is a sovereign nation. Iraq is a sovereign nation. And as he was saying those words, I was thinking, yes, that's true, of course. And we get that as Americans, but our approach to sovereignty and our ideas about when you should and shouldn't go across to other states' borders are a little bit different from Europeans. And so I had some you know, various a soup of think uh, thoughts, rather, uh, that I was working with. And, uh, and then I, was, I had the experience of being there with kids and found that my children, who are very peaceable California-type kids, we don't even bring plastic forks to lunch you know, <laughs> in the school schoolyard. You'll get kicked out and sent home. Uh, they were both in fistfights in Ireland and um, were taunted, basically, for being American. So, so my son said, Mom, you just need to think about this and write this book. What is the role of the U.S. in the world today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I spent some time in Ireland. I don't think I got in any fistfights. I do well, remember the dark and stormy nights. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I do remember trying to explain to people what America is about. That, that was something I did quite a bit of. Uh, so uh, American Umpire has a big idea, and this uh, interview will appear on New Books and Big Ideas. What is the big idea in American Umpire? I think to me the biggest idea about American Umpire really is that uh, that's expressed in the title that the United States has had, uh, since its very founding and worked into its constitutional DNA, the idea that there needs to exist above or beside states uh, an entity that will intervene in extremis uh, if states come to blows or, you know, come into serious forms of conflict, whether it's economic conflict or physical violence. And when when uh, the founders of the United States actually wrote up the Constitution, they had this very much in mind. They said things like, you know, there's no guarantee that these 13 states will always be at peace. And we need, as, um, in fact, this was John Jay said, an umpire to compel acquiescence. And the word umpire was used by Jay and Madison and Hamilton and George Washington. And I had actually just come up with this idea once when I was fumbling my way through an explanation to students about my ideas. And I said, you know, I just don't buy it. I've read a a bazillion books now saying that the United States is an empire. Everyone uses the term in a different way, means different things by it. But when you really pin them all down, it's just, it's like jello. It's picking up jello and it just doesn't hold together. And I thought the United States was really more of an umpire. We get in, um, you know, sometimes we make the wrong calls, sometimes we make a good call then we basically get get back and out of the way. That's what we've tried to do. And it goes back to the way that we were set up. So when we look at the American Civil War, for example, why Abraham Lincoln intervenes, invades the American South. He's playing a role that the founders envisioned, although they hoped it would never come to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So then the federative structure of the United States plays an important role in your book. And as you point out, this is sort of an experiment and one that was going against the tide a little bit. 
Yes, it was going very much against the tide, and I think this is why we still struggle with this idea, are there empires, what, what is an empire? But really, beginning with the Treaty of Westphalia of 1648, <laughs> there has been always this idea of that, that the nation-state is an entity that is separate, independent, sovereign, as my Irish colleague would have put it, and that sovereignty is like a bubble. You cannot touch it without breaking it. You can't reach into the bubble uh, without violating the principle and premise of the system. In the United States, we've lived with this tension, awkward and horrible as it's been at times, with uh, the dual sovereignty of the state, meaning, you know, in our case, one of the 50 states, and with the, the larger sovereign, meaning the national government. And, uh, and Europeans have struggled with this, too. I think, to an important extent, the EU is quite explicitly um, modeled on the experience of the United States when Europeans came to realize after World War II that, as Robert Schuman put it, you know, foreign minister of France, they had to make war impossible, not just unpleasant, but impossible. And they did that by binding the states together, the states of Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I guess my next question is, how does uh, this belief in a sort of supra-state organization manifests itself in American foreign policy. Actually, let me step back before I ask that question. Um, it seems to me that one of the things that the analogy of umpire relies upon is a set of rules that have legitimacy among the participants. And one of the things you point out in the book is that some people will say that we forced people to agree to these principles. Um, oh, you, however, But you, however, say that the, these principles were sort of – they had uh, – they had a kind of autonomy of that they were moving through the historical stream. They were spreading independently of the United States and that the United States was one of the countries or nations or groups of people, I don't know what you want to call them, that were also supportive of these things. But the context developed outside the United States, maybe with the aid of the United States. What are the principles that underlie this? I'm thinking of an analogy, you know, again, like baseball. You cannot play baseball unless you agree on the rules. How, how are the rules developing? And players fight about the rules all the time, and they argue about the rules, and people hate the umpire, and mm-hmm. and yet at the same time they need the umpire mm-hmm. because there are common rules. And you're absolutely correct that it's asserted all of the time that the United States has come up with some rules on its own, that it just then goes around shoving down everyone else's throat. And I think that that's just patently not true. And uh, and you just start looking at the historical record and you see it everywhere. Now, the big principles I look at um, that I, I've identified, I call them access, arbitration, and transparency. Now, which is in some ways a way to try to get at the underlying notions between things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which has a, a lovely ring, but is a, a little piece of historical baggage that's American. But the idea that systems which are accessible, either economically or politically, are somehow more more functional is an idea that we see in the world all around us. We see it every day. We might call that democracy, or uh, if we're talking historically, we might call it the open door if we're looking at economic uh, transparency or economic um, accessibility. So access, I think, is one thing. And I think that this is something you just see again and again in so many different places. Uh, The United States, of course, stands for a democratic structure, but 
you, know, you can see this all throughout Europe. Uh, again, to go back to the open door analogy, which is often used as an example of American imperialism. In fact, the uh, great historian William Appleman Williams would always talk about the open door empire. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're sitting Trojan horses through, and then then we spring out and conquer these societies that we, you know, that we have open trade agreements with. But um, the open door was something that the United States and Britain talked about for decades and decades. Uh, and then China closed all its doors in 1949, but when Deng Xiaoping reopened the doors in 1979, he called it opening up, mm-hmm. Kaifeng, this idea that, you know, you have to have, in a way, an open door, or otherwise you're mired in poverty forever. Mm-hmm. And we see what's happened with China ever since they um, embraced the principle of equal access, or at least op- more open access. So principle number one, access. Arbitration is the second principle. Mm-hmm. And this is the idea that really does go back to the Treaty of Westphalia even, that diplomacy, arbitration, negotiation is a superior way for countries to interact than brute violence. And the idea that you know, states get what they want by building a big army is a very, very old idea and perhaps the oldest idea. But the notion of arbitration is really this preference for making up clear rules Having, um, you know, having arbiters, even uh, perhaps even judges, sometimes explicit umpires. In fact, when the first uh, permanent court of arbitration was founded, by the way, not at the behest of the United States, but in 1899 and 1900, at the behest of all people, you know, bloody Nicholas, Nicholas the Tsar yeah. Nicholas II of Russia, initiated the first Hague Peace Conference in 1899, and it was at the first Hague Peace Conference that was what was called the first permanent court of arbitration was founded. It still exists today. And when they were deciding on judges who would rule in this court, they called them umpires. So this notion that there should be a structure of law is something that's very old. It goes back deep into European history. We, of course, are an advocate of this idea. The United States as the country with the first written constitution is a, is a very great example of it, but it's, it's not our idea. Um, you know, it's an idea that's got deep um, roots in the soil of, of the whole world. Um, and in fact, speaking of roots, I sometimes say the difference between the modern world and the world of empires is akin to the difference between the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. Mm-hmm. Once farming was invented in the various places where it was, it's an idea to spread. You didn't have to go around making people farm. Instead, they just recognized that, you know, that some things work better. So access and arbitration are things that work better. And the third thing is transparency, which is um, a kind of a an important sine qua non for access and arbitration to work is the idea that you have to make government transparent. You have to make business transactions transparent. Now, this this doesn't mean that people aren't going around all the time trying to hide things because that's human nature. But as a principle, transparency is really built into the American system. And it's something that people all around the world clamor for. Um, you know, we, we remember Mikhail Gorbachev talking about glasnost, um, you know, as being openness and uh, the idea that systems need to be transparent. Mm-hmm. So I think these are the big principles that, that govern the world. These are the rules that the umpire is himself or herself held accountable to and that we basically, you know, we're trying to enforce, which, I, by the way, I don't think is that great a thing for us. I mean, it's been good for the world. It's been good for the United States at various points, but it's also cost us quite a bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, generally speaking, these sort of... Mm, 
these great shifts in what we might call values or norms go under the title of democratization, for example, or liberalization of economic policy. I mean, these are things that are ongoing today. And I think, as you point out, they don't need to be uh, forced on anyone by the United States. They are, they are being adopted by nations all over the world and have been for a very long time. I mean, the idea of popular sovereignty itself, this is something the Americans were very supportive of early on. Uh, and it now, I used to ask my students, um, you know, please propose a mode of governance other than democracy and argue for it. <laughs> Good luck. Right. Well, they just didn't have, they didn't even have an idea of what one might be. I mean, and, you know, and, and this is remarkable, the, the degree of consensus that this is the way that states should be run. I mean, a hundred years ago, people would have been able to say there were other modes. You know, monarchy, for example, was something that Nicholas II would have said was a wonderful thing. But now all those ideas have been swept uh, from the field of history, and it is democracy. We agree this is the case. Rule of law, similarly, or one of the things you point out is that equality among nations, when a state joined the United States, in the 19th century, they came on as equals, and they could only come on as equals. And that's an interesting thing, because that's not the way empires run. The more powerful people get privileges in empires, but not in the United States, because we have this yes, rule. Yes, you're right. Equality. It was absolutely yeah. radical. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things, one of my favorite authors is Tocqueville, and he points this out very clearly. He comes from France in the 1830s, and he says, this place is like no other place. There has never been a place like this on Earth. You know, and for good and for bad. I mean, he says some good things about Americans, but he also says Americans are, for example, tasteless brutes uh, that have no <laughs> – and he also says they have no pride or honor, you know, because they will – you know, as I'm – my favorite Tocqueville line is he says, you know, Americans will buy a house just to sell it. <laughs> and this was mind-boggling to him. We think, well, yeah. Yeah, and, right. And well, he, this was mind-boggling to him. He just could not understand this at all. But I think he was right in pointing out that there was just never a place like this. And I, again, I want to say that for good and ill, this is not you know, an unalloyed good. Uh, and one of the things I really like about your book is that you point out that once America decides to be an umpire to sort of negotiate relations among these rules, that uh, some good calls are made and some bad calls are made. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about, since you know, I'm sure there'll be critics of your books, let's talk about some of the bad calls. What are some of the bad calls that the American umpire has made? I, I think uh, the most obvious recent one that we are, we're all painfully aware of is the decision to invade Iraq in 2003. I understand it, uh, and I think that what happens for the United States is that there's this sense of, you know, that rules have to be enforced. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that invasion, but certainly a really important one, and this is something that actually a lot of other nations came on for initially, was the idea that nations should not be able to put out weapons of mass destruction and ignore the rulings of the United Nations. Now, we know now there were no weapons of mass destruction. We do know, however, that Saddam Hussein was flouting the dictates of the United Nations and had been doing so for about a decade. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that to an important extent that that is consistent with the uh, American policy since the Truman Doctrine of trying to enforce these rules. Um, I, I also think it was a terrible mistake, mm-hmm. and uh, and so that's a, a good example of it. Um, you know, and then the other kind of outstanding ones are Vietnam. But you know, the, the problem is, I think so much American history is that we are so obsessed with our mistakes that we don't take much time out to figure out where out where we got things right. 
And it's very important that, in fact, it would be just as counterproductive to obsess about failures as it would be to ignore them. And uh, if you want to try to learn from history to some extent, at least, uh, you have to kind of see where things went right and why they did when they did, or at least, uh, you know, to get a sense of the broader picture rather than uh, focusing on all these kinds of things. I wrote a history of the Peace Corps at one point, for example, an early book that I wrote, and what was amazing to me was that no one else had, at, up to the point that I published this book in, I think, 1998, no one had written a book, or really an academic book, about the history of the American Peace Corps. Now, this was John Kennedy's only living legacy, the one thing that John Kennedy <laughs> initiated that's still with us. Mm-hmm. And you can find a bazillion books on Vietnam or the Civil Rights Movement from the 60s. But gosh, after 30 years, you can only find one book on the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about, think, you know, we hate to take those things very seriously. Sure. No, that's right. I, I agree with that completely. Let's talk about one example that I think is a, a very instructive and uh, of, of, of what you're trying to say in the book. And it's often brought up by critics of the United States, and that is uh, our adventure in the Philippines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I now see to me the Philippines is fascinating and not for the reasons I think maybe many other people find it fascinating. To me, the Philippines was a was a part of a triad in almost the exact same year, in almost the exact same months, the United States confronted three alternative po- possibilities for how it would act in the world in 1898. There was a humanitarian crisis in Cuba. And the question became, should the United States do anything at all about the fact that 200,000 people had died within short order of mass famine because of Spanish um, policies towards colonialism? Door number one. Door number two, the Philippines, uh, a former colony, you know, then a colony of, of Spain, should the United States colonize it after, after they, quote-unquote, liberated it from the Spaniards? And three was the open door in China. So these three policies all show the potential of the 20th century, all are explored. Um, the United States ha- eventually does help to uh, free Cuba. It becomes an independent nation state for a short time. It's a protectorate, basically, of the United States, but that's also dropped within a, you know, a couple of decades. So that's door number one, humanitarian assistance. Door number two, the Philippines. The United States actually obtains its first and really only colony in the Philippines. And then door number three is the open door. But what happens in the Philippines, the crazy thing about that is, yes, the United States, for the first time, anybody who wants to say it's an empire can point the finger and say it is. But in 1902, two years after um, it you know, got the Philippines from Spain, I'm sorry, three, three, four years, it passes the Philippine Organic Act, which says that U.S. businesses cannot own land of any size in the Philippines. American banks cannot open branches there. The Philippines will have its own legislature. In 1960, the Philippine Independence Act, it will not only have an, uh, uh, it'll have a, a two-branch legislature, not just an assembly, but also a senate. And then in 1934, the Philippine Independence Act, which basically says in 10 years, the Philippines will be independent altogether from the United States. The United States was an empire, but almost right away it decided, oh boy, this is not a good idea. This is not where we want to be. How did we get here? Let's get out of here. Mm -hmm. And so it's, in a way, the exception that proves the rule. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I quite agree with that. What would you say to, um, again, this is another case that is, I won't say it's difficult to align with the notion of American being an umpire because it seems more imperial in the traditional sense of landed conquest. What would you say about uh, 
things like the Louisiana Purchase and the Westward Expansion, and then, of course, the um, placement of uh, Native Americans in reservations. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly this is one of the primary ways in which historians today talk about the United States as an empire, and they talk about westward expansion as being a form of empire akin to the Ottoman Empire or the Russian Empire or the Aztec Empire or the Comanche Empire, to quote my good friend and, and fellow scholar Pekka Hamalainen. Um, but I think that that's uh, a very... It's a very inaccurate way of looking at this because part what we're seeing here in the conquest of the Americas altogether and Oceania, Australia, New Zealand, etc., is the kind of 19th century race uh, to uh, put borders around everything, to what I call it flagging, to put your flag in a particular spot. And so this is something that empires are doing, and it's also something that nation states like the United States are doing. Uh, you see it in Brazil and Argentina and you know, Chile, um, you see countries, even republics, go having border wars with one another over territory. Chile takes half of Peru, for example, and Brazil nabs parts of Paraguay. And the United States goes to war with Mexico and ends up taking about half or a third of Mexico. Uh, so this, this phenomenon of border states and conflict with indigenous peoples, to me, is 19th century nationalism. Uh, it's also the fact that there are no rules at that time for um, how nation states or, or, or empires are supposed to behave towards the territories of other peoples. It is really an all-out race all around the world. And I, we don't go around talking about the empire of Chile or the empire of Australia because it's kind of silly. Well, we know that these countries have and had indigenous peoples whom they oppressed, uh, and that's true uh, throughout much of the world. It's also true in places like Africa where one nation, one group of folks, you know, oppressed another and drew borders around them and made them speak their language. So we don't call that empire everywhere. So we have to be consistent. Otherwise, we're just throwing terms around because we feel like it and because we want to be critical. And so we, we nab onto the closest hate word that we can find. And imperialistic is, is a pretty good one. Yeah. So if the United States westward expansion and then the conquest of the Native Americans and then the kicking out of the Mexicans and so on and so forth in Spanish is uh, not imperial or an empire. What What is an empire? What can we, with some historical assurance, say, this is an empire? This is what we're going to call an empire. Right. I think an empire, by the, the most a basic definition of it, has to be that you include subject peoples who do not have the same rights of, as others uh, that those peoples would rather get out. They would not. They don't want to be a part of your state, your government structure, and that they persist until they get out. Um, now let's take the Philippines because this is a good example of the United States was briefly an empire. They had a subject people. Uh, the Filipinos did not have equal rights with other states. And by the way, by the way, Hawaii did. Hawaii came eventually in as a state. Uh, and in fact, even before Hawaii was taken over in the late 1900s, in the mid-1900s, the king of Hawaii, Kamehameha, actually petitioned to join the United States as a state on an equal basis with the other states in the same way that, you know, uh, Kansas and, you know, California, et cetera, came in. So 
So an empire means that the, uh, that that territory does not have equal rights with other territories, and it wants to get out. Mm-hmm. The Philippines, they did not have equal rights. They wanted to get out, and they did get out. Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't think we can look at, you know, Omaha or Iowa or, you know, any of these cities or states in the Midwest today and say, oh, well, these are parts of the American empire, because mm-hmm. they're, they're just not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Uh, one of the cases that I find fascinating in terms of American foreign policy and thoughts about empire, it's very rarely brought up, and I don't expect you to have anything prepared to say about it, but I'd be interested to hear what you say, and that is Puerto Rico. I, I, you know, as historians, the, 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 the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States is unprecedented, as far as I can tell. Yeah, but yeah Puerto Rico, it's, it's just almost funny, because they go back and forth in yeah. their minds, and there have been a series of um, plebiscites about this matter, and you know they don't want to be a state of the United States, but on the other hand, they don't want to be independent of the United States either. There's just, just too many benefits. So the benefits of having a separate identity, they like. The benefits of being a part of the United States financial structure and security structure, they like. Um, so it's it's a kind of it's a funny little half halfway out yeah. that uh, for some reason the Puerto Ricans mostly want to stay in. Although obviously there's a big debate about it in Puerto Rico, and I don't mean in any way to uh, disparage or diminish the the difficulty of that choice. Um, but yeah. yes, it, it's hard to call the United States an empire when, when by the way, in 1960, you know, the United Nations ruled, I mean, made a law saying that imperialism is illegal, and that is the law of the world, by the way. Mm-hmm. So the idea that there's a network of laws that we all adhere to, there it is. Mm-hmm. And so Puerto Rico can get out any time it wants to. Yeah, I just find the legal condition and the political condition of Puerto Rico very fascinating and also indicative of American values and really kind of a dilemma that America faces. On the one hand, we might want to have them as a state. On the other hand, we can't force them to be a state. And then, of course, there are people in it that don't want to be a state, but there are people that do want to be a state. And uh, given uh, our, I think, very generous, I don't know uh, in particulars, um, attitude toward Puerto Rico, they do benefit from not being a state. I mean, it seems they've made a very, very, they've played by the rules and made a very rational choice. No empire would stand for this for a second. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's the other part of it. If we have an empire, how can we get nothing out of it or so little out of it? It's, uh, you know, the United States, uh, a recent estimate by Richard Haas, head of the Council on Foreign Relations, he was looking at the U.S. defense budget and said that uh, only 10 to 15 percent of the American defense budget can be accounted for as being a part of the actual defense of our own territory. It's almost, in other words, 85 to 90% of what we spent is to defend somebody else other than ourselves. And this is an enormous expense for us, and it's an enormous windfall for those folks who get defense on the cheap. You know, the Japanese called this the Yoshida Doctrine. <laughs> the Yoshida Doctrine after World War II is basically, let America pay. And and we have, and we continue to do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm drawn back to my time in Ireland, and since you've spent some time there, you probably know I used to see billboards that told Irish people to love the EU. And the billboard said, this is how much money we get from the EU for every, uh, you know, for, for, for every, um, every pound that we, we invest, we get this much back. So they knew it was a good deal. So, I mean, I'm sure that, uh, yeah, the Puerto Ricans probably know the same thing and that's very good for them. I mean, they're playing by the rules and that's just fine. So you do mention this issue of the, the Truman doctrine, which allows us, permits us legally to, uh, aid uh, other nations that we believe are 
in jeopardy of being subjugated, uh, both economically and militarily. Uh, this is still in force. And near the end of your book, you question whether it is wise to continue it as it is currently being practiced. Could you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah, the Truman Doctrine, I think, you know, it's not a law. It's, uh, it's simply what Truman said, which is that it should be the responsibility of the United, United Nations to help free nations which are struggling against subjugation. I was going to say, we might, we might call it... As you say, we might call it, my son would call it the Spider-Man doctrine because with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> Nobody calls it that. <laughs> Go ahead. I did not know, but maybe we'll start something new here, Marshall. <laughs> uh, the Spider-Man doctrine. Um, well, I think that this is a doctrine that helps us explain, because I always have struggled for years to explain to students why there were five Vietnam presidents. I mean, you, I try to think of individuals as different from one another as, you know, Eisenhower and John F. Kennedy or JFK and Harry Truman or you know, Richard Nixon and LBJ. They're pretty different. They're from all different parts of the country, different generations, and yet they all seem to keep doing the same doggone thing again and again. Or why there were three Iraq presidents mm-hmm. from, you know, W to, um, you know, to Obama and, uh, and, the, and the first uh, George Bush president. So, I think that uh, that what helps us understand this underlying continuity is the belief that um, the world will fall apart if the United States, the States doesn't get out there and you know keep an eye out on everyone's security. And we've been doing it since 1947. I think we've made mistakes in the process. I think any nation that was in this absolutely unprecedented role would make such mistakes. But I also think the time has come to let others take up some of the burden because good leaders develop new leaders. You know, nobody can do this forever. And also that, uh, in a way, the other metaphor I like to think about is that the United States, along with uh, other countries, helped to create the framework of the United Nations in 1945, which was another unprecedented development in world history. And, you know, you stake a tree, and then what the United States found is that it, it had to be that stake because the United Nations was too flimsy to really hold up uh, under the winds of the Cold War. And so the United States did that. But at some point, you have to take away the stake. And you have to say, okay, we all know there are new rules now, right? It's against the law to be an imperialist nation. It's, uh, it's against the law to make aggressive war on other countries. Let's all enforce this. Or let other of the great powers, which we help to rebuild, take upon themselves some of that enforcement responsibility. Because otherwise, we're just picking up a heavier and heavier load as people, other people are putting more and more of it down. Mm-hmm. Now, in fairness, I think we should say that, that in many instances in which we have uh, intervened militarily uh, to help what we believed were people who were going to be subjugated, we had allies. This was true in Korea and in Vietnam, and it was also true in both Iraq wars. Uh, other nations joined us in fighting there. Of course, their contributions, I, I think, especially in the Iraq wars outside Britain, were very small. Uh, so they have been by our side to some extent. Um, w- w- one case that you deal with at some length, which I found fascinating and I think more people should know about, if they are to judge exactly your proposition fairly, is the Balkans crisis of the 1990s. Because I think that really... Uh, sheds a certain amount of light on what we might want to expect from our allies. Can you talk a little bit about that or walk us through that and what happened? Sure. Um, this was the crisis um, during which, you know, after the fall of the Soviet Union and various Eastern European countries start to break away and Yugoslavia fell apart. 
And initially, the idea was that there would be a federation um, within, you know, that those countries of the former Yugoslavia. But what happened started to happen pretty quickly was that countries like Croatia and um, Bosnia, et cetera, started to pull away. And Serbia, the biggest of these states and the most powerful, and the location of the former capital of Yugoslavia um, in Belgrade had all the basically the armaments and they wanted to, you know, they wanted to keep these other states in their nation state to make themselves more powerful. And so what you began to have was a series of small wars, civil wars, and, uh, you know, lots of terrible examples of that uh, from that period of time. And, uh, and of course, culminating in some pretty brutal massacres of largely Muslim popula- populations at such places as Srebrenica. But what happened in this whole context in the mid-90s, was early 90s, mid-90s, is that the Europeans said, now, okay, United States, we don't need your help. You know, we, we're, on, we're on it now, and this is the year of Europe. Um, we will make sure that these things don't, you know, fall into um, crisis. So the United States said, "Fabulous! This is great. You know, we're you know we're you know we're done. We've we've done a lot of we've been dealing with a lot of crises. We'll let you handle this." But what happened is that the Europeans basically didn't, and you ended up with terrible massacres and um, the uh, blockade of cities for you know for months, 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 months on time on top of each other. Sarajevo, for example, was um, more than a year, if I recall right. In any case, um, what essentially happened is that finally it was the United States that said, my God, this cannot go on. And so uh, Richard Holbrook and other American negotiators worked very closely with the UN, Kofi Annan, et cetera, basically to say, please turn over the, you know, the authority to NATO. And the United States you know, has authority within NATO. And we basically pressured our European allies into dealing with this mass genocide. And you know, when the United States weighed in, the fighting stopped mm-hmm. and Serbia, you know, it folded. Mm-hmm. And so this was, in, in some ways, a really awful, awful event for so many reasons, and one of which was simply the recognition that the United States had to be the umpire because mm-hmm. the Europeans would not, you know, they would not step up. And so in that sense, it's, it's bad all around. But, you know, to their credit, I have to say, I, I really understood the full dimensions of this when I was in Ireland, and a lot of Europeans were equally disgusted about it. So I think that those kinds of things are a lesson in that it's difficult to transfer this role, but that's why we have to start talking about it. That's why we have to start working on it now, because it will take a while. You know, we can't just simply turn our backs and walk out of Europe. But, you know, people talk about getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan, but why don't they talk about getting out of Japan and Germany? Mm -hmm. We've been in those countries for 60 years, and they are wealthy now. They are not bombed out and busted as they were uh, when the United States first went in. And, you know, we went into those countries because we were, you know, asked to stay, basically, and and to provide their defense and to defend other countries from Japan and Germany, which at the time seemed to be dangerous renegades that nobody trusted. The United States was the first country to sign a peace treaty with Japan, and it took us years to convince the other nations of the world to do so. Not until 1951 was there a peace treaty with Japan. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think that, especially the Balkans case, points out that, that we do may, need to make this transition. I, 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 and how, how would you, how, how could it be done? How could we begin to relinquish or transfer some of our uh, imperial, if I can make up a word, our imperial authority to places like Germany and Britain and France? Well, the French, of course, are doing it on their own already, uh, and especially Japan. How, how can we get them to step up? 
I think that uh, you you do it, as I said, partly by talking about it. It's an amazing thing, the, the power of words. Um, you say, okay, you know, you you have a law, the Japanese, that they can no, they can spend no more than one percent of GNP on defense. Well, the United States spends almost five. All right, so four or five times what they spend. And we can say, you know, we're cutting back to 3%. We're cutting back to 2%. Um, you have to, we're, we're going to be withdrawing from Japan. I, I don't think we really should be having bases in these other countries. The United States used to be, by the way, very, very good at de-escalating after a war. After the end of the Revolutionary War, we had one ship left and we sold it. So I don't think we need to go back to those days because, you know, the world is a smaller place than it was then. But... Um, in a way, I think it's uh, it's time for a judo move here. <laughs> if I can buy a Japanese turn, we need to, you know, we need to ourselves kind of try to flip around the situation so that others are taking more responsibility. Yeah. But as you know, Marshall, I am a historian. Right. Yeah, I'm sure I understand completely. I understand completely. Let me ask you, since you are a historian and I am too, uh, let's speculate a little further since it's fun. <laughs> so the is there any reason to fear? I mean, I have to ask this question because. Um, uh, right-thinking people have been wrong before about just this question. Is there any reason to fear the Germans or the Japanese? Or is that just a ridiculous question? Oh, Marshall, you ask good questions. Sometimes are well, I don't think it's ridiculous. Uh, I think that, you know, the future is a dark room, and we're always feeling our way into it. <laughs> and we just hope, like heck, we won't trip. But I think that, uh, again, to go back, what I hope to is it will be ultimately a reasonable analogy between the Paleolithic and the Neolithic. I think the world has changed dramatically. Your students, right, Marshall, couldn't right. even dream up another system which yeah. they thought was better. Right. And even when countries aren't democracies, they generally pretend to be yeah. because they know that's what the world expects. I think that the Germans and the Japanese uh, learned really hard lessons very, very hard, painful lessons um, that they don't seem to need anybody else to remind them of at this point. Um, and the other thing is that you know, the, the good part about all this is that it's so self-reinforcing. Those countries, by competing economically rather than territorially any longer, have come back stronger, bigger, better than ever. So, you know, Germany is twice the size now <laughs> as it was at the end of World War II when it, you know, when it found itself um, divided because of, uh, because of its deeds. So Germany is a much stronger country, and I think that pretty much everybody's figured out that uh, it works better. And so people do what works. Yeah. I think there's been a sea change in what people around the world believe about the way politics and uh, economy should be structured in the same way. I think an analogy Americans might understand is that, you know, I grew up in an environment in which the N word was used in free flowing speech. People just said it, you know, my relatives said it, people I knew said it. And now that's just impossible. You couldn't imagine that. Or, you know, similarly, when you watch old movies, one of the things you immediately notice is everybody smokes all the time. Mm -hmm. That's just unimaginable today. And, of course, at the time, nobody noticed that because everybody was smoking all the time or everybody was using the N-word all the time. But today, no one can imagine a form of government that is different from democracy, really. And no one can imagine an economy which is has a certain element of what we might call capitalism in it or free enterprise. And I don't think anybody can imagine a state in which all citizens aren't equal. And this is a huge sea change. You just go back to the 19th century, even the early part of the 20th century, and 
there were viable alternatives to these things, and there just are no more of them. I mean, I think this is what Fukuyama talked when he talked about the end of history, but uh, it's a sort of bad phrase. But he had a point that now there's a new consensus about the way things should be run, and it's a global consensus. And um, it includes the Germans and the Japanese, I think. And I think one day it will include the Russians, and I think it may already include the Chinese. I don't know. I don't know enough about China. But we have to begin, I think, by calling things what they are. And I think this is what your book does. America is not an empire. Or if it is an empire, it's like no empire before it. And this actually does touch on a different, an interesting question. Let me ask you this. A lot of people will – I interviewed a guy, actually, who wrote a book about American exceptionalism. And he's a British guy. And he said that there's just no such thing as American exceptionalism. That is just propaganda. <laughs> well, I think every people is exceptional in its own ways. Uh, it would be also silly to sit around and say, oh, the Americans, you know, they're like everybody else. No, they're not. And even Californians aren't like our folks from Arkansas and folks from Arkansas aren't, aren't like New Englanders. So I think that the United States, um, you know, it has its uniquenesses. It's, for example, I think performed a role that, you know, no other country has performed to date. I mean, is that because we're special, different, you know, made like nobody else? Not, not really, because I think that the role was to an important extent called upon, uh, called for by other countries. So, um, I think he's right in the sense of exceptionalism in that we are part and parcel of the world. And that, again, is another reason why it's kind of silly to go around talking about the values that America is shoving down everybody's throat because these are pretty universal values. And uh, as you said, it is a big sea change. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, Marshall. I, I, I sometimes will show students, for example, films like Rebel Without a Cause. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in that film, one of the first things that James Dean says is, God, I just wish my dad would slug mom once, and then she'd respect him. And my students all get a little shocked look in their faces. Yeah. You know, I didn't think of James Dean, James Dean this way. But that's how it was. You know, yeah. you know just spank your wife. You know, just, right. just hit her. Um, and that was something that people said just as commonly as they said the N-word or, or smoked in movies and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, some changes have just been so profound, and it's very easy for people today to kind of take it for granted. But, you know, you, you said something else I thought interesting just now. You said, well, whether you call it an empire or not, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like unlike any empire in the world. One of the things I, I make, I talk about in the book, and I hope people will read it because I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, we can all engage in a debate about these questions. But I think when you use a word like empire and you say, ah, let's just use it because it's, easy. It's, it's the handiest word. And then we'll go on to talk about American history. We'll just call it an empire. You are using a word like an N-word. Mm-hmm. You know, you're using a word that will lead to someone else, perhaps one of your countrymen or countrywomen, being beheaded in another country, being kidnapped as a journalist. Um, these are words that are fighting words that are taken extraordinarily um, seriously by, by people in other parts of the world. And, and so I think that it's, it's wrong I think it's um, irresponsible of us to use words imprecisely. If it applies, use it. If it doesn't apply, don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I quite agree with you there. I do not ever refer to America as an empire. Um, I don't think people will persist. It's too much fun to pick on the big guy. And an empire <laughs> is what you call a country you don't like. I mean, there's no question <laughs> right. about that. That's the definition of it. If you don't like a country, I used to talk about the Soviet empire. And my, you know, my, a lot of my colleagues who are on the left did not like this at all. 
I persisted in doing it. And I would tell them, well, it's because I don't like the place. It's not, I don't know. You know I just don't like the place. And I realized this, how it conveys that message that I do not like this place. I even think the critics of the United States like the United States. I just think they are misspeaking. And it, it's, it's unfortunate. And again, I, I think it's important to say about your book that this is not an exercise in triumphalism at all. You point to many instances in which the umpires made horrible calls that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and will mm-hmm. continue to do so. You can't ask for perfection. The council of perfection, of course, ends tragically always. But yeah, as, know, I, as you, I say, umpires, by definition, cannot win. Yeah, you know, you muddle your way through. And, you know, I think that, you know, at, at, at the best, the United States has muddled its way through pretty successfully. And, and you know, when, when the history of the late 20th century is, is written, I think that American foreign policy will, will be seen as one of the great triumphs in world history because, it, you know, the, the wave of democratization, the sort of improvements in standards of living throughout the world and things like this. Whether America survives all this uh, beneficent action, I don't know. <laughs> but I, you know, I don't know if we will because uh, you know we may spend ourselves out of existence for the benefit of other people. But you know, I think it's imp- it's important to recognize that you know even in instances where we intervene, you know, you take for example what we just talked about. That is, uh, Trebinitz and this business in the Balkans. We went to the UN. We didn't just do it, right? Empires just do things. They don't ask. And That's right. Asked. And the United States has tried to a very great extent to follow the structure of the law. Now, it, it hasn't always. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the first to acknowledge that. And the times the United States has flouted the World Court, for example, um, and when we mine the harbors of Nicaragua. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think that uh, there's certainly times where we've broken the rules ourselves. Uh, do people break rules? Yes. Does that mean rules are absolutely irrelevant? No. No, not at all. Rules are really important. I, I loved what Winston Churchill said about the Atlantic Charter. He said, it's not a law, it's a star. Yeah, and right. the ship of state guides by the stars. <laughs> so, you know, do we get lost, or, you know, et cetera? Yes, that all happens. And, I, you know, Marshall, I, I totally get where my colleagues are coming from. And I myself, as I said, I look at my notes from lectures I wrote in the 1980s, and I'm talking about the U.S. as an empire, and, and, and in, the, in the shriek and the, you know, bombings of the 20th century and all the wars that the United States endured and went through and initiated at times, um, it was hard to see the big picture. And that's why I think a world historical perspective is really helpful. And you step back a ways, and as you said uh, just now, if you look at the first half of the 20th century, and then you look at the second half of the 20th century, you have to say, oh my gosh, you know, what was happening? That life expectancies doubled. That war between states declined in every single decade of the Truman Doctrine up to the present. Uh, so, you know, it has been, I don't want to, I don't want to, it's been a triumph more than certainly a tragedy, which is how it's long been characterized um, by beginning with William Appleman Williams, the tragedy of American diplomacy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there have been tragic moments, but overall it's, you know, it's worked out pretty well, mm-hmm. Yeah, which is like, you know, you almost feel bad about saying you're not supposed to say that as an American historian, right. but hey, we need to be truthful too. Mm-hmm. So let me uh, close the interview by uh, asking one final question, and it's a topical question, and it, it, it relates to some extent to recent events, if not current events. How do you see 9-11, that is both why and how the United States was attacked, and then our response to it? How does that fit into your framework? Um, 
that to me is a, a great example of um, the cost that the United States has become a target, made itself a target. And this wasn't, by the way, something we really truly even stumbled into. Sometime, go back and look at the congressional debates about the Truman Doctrine in 1947. And people were saying things like, do you realize that we're now the most popular country in the world, and if we take up this role, we'll become the most unpopular country in the world? Uh, do you realize this means that sometimes we're going to be accused of, and we will actually be supporting dictators because they look better than the other guy, or because um, you know it'll help us uh, maintain a country's sovereignty? I mean, Greece itself was a monarchy. Uh, Turkey was more or less a, a dictatorship at that time. So we were supporting countries that we didn't really approve of. And all of these questions, all the, the possibilities, all the horrific possibilities that it could lead to were on the table openly amongst the American people. This is not something the American people were scared into or misled into by Harry Truman. They really understood the stakes. And, uh, and 9-11 is an example of that. So I, I'm doing this interview from New York. I happen to be here at the moment. And every time I come to New York, I go to ground zero mm-hmm. because I think we need to let these things touch our souls. We need to be reminded of responsibilities and the costs of those responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of our response to it? Well, I think uh, that our initial response going to the UN and the U- United Nations unanimously, um, you know, condemning what had happened, uh, that was the right move. I think that um, that um, taking Afghanistan to task was, you know, unavoidable. It's what we had to do. I mean, that's these are unpleasant things, but I, you, know, you have to respond militarily. There are times when there's that's what's called for um, because they did not respond diplomatically. <laughs> we did we did go for diplomacy first. I think going into Iraq was a mistake. I think mm-hmm. it uh, it was a, it's you know made it a two front war. Uh, that's always a bad idea. Uh, it was a much more ambiguous war, um, and that you know has been very costly. But on the other hand, I also think I don't know what the long-term effects will be. None of us do. I, I was actually on the State Department Historical Advisory Committee during the early during that period of time, and our nine-member committee had a meeting at one moment with Condi Rice. Condoleezza Rice, who was saying to us, well, in our administration, we see this as being like Europe in 1947. Who knows? Maybe in 50 years, people will say, my gosh, who would have ever thought the Middle East would be at peace? But now there's democracy across the Middle East, and the Middle Eastern countries don't snipe at each other, and uh, they don't cause wars. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure she was right in her analogy, by the way, but um, I also think that you know the jury probably is still out. Yeah. Right now, it looks like a mistake. Yep. I would agree with all that. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. We have run out of time. We've been talking with Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman about American Umpire. Elizabeth, let me close the interview by asking you what your current project is. What are you working on now? Oh, my gosh. I'm just having fun, Marshall. Uh, A couple years ago, I made my debut as a novelist. I wrote Broken Promises, a novel of the Civil War, which was picked up by Random House and actually won a couple of literary prizes. And I am now working on a novel about Alexander Hamilton, who was, I'm here to tell you, Marshall, 
the sexiest man in the American <laughs> Revolution, <laughs> perhaps the only one. Uh, but what uh, what a guy! Again, this is a subject where I started out thinking one thing about my my subject, and ended up thinking something very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was one heck of a man, and also um, you know, real Democrat. Mm-hmm. He's often portrayed in contra distinction to Jefferson, who's always held up as this exemplar of democratic virtues, and of course we know as a slaveholder, and Alexander Hamilton was the leading abolitionist, one of the leading abolitionists of his mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. Brad so Pitt in the lead, if you're going to sell the film rights and put Brad Pitt in the lead as Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. So uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening to this interview with Elizabeth Cobbs Hoffman on the New Books Network. Elizabeth, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. All right, everyone, ha- have a great week. 